Into the Bad Quaker Podcast, where liberty is our mission. Today is Thursday, April 18th, 2013, and this is podcast number 303. Uh, the announcements today, I have a little twist, so be sure and pay attention, uh, because this is not, we have, we have something I need to clarify. First off, with Porkfest 10, everything is fine, June 17th through 23rd, Rogers Campground, Lancaster, New Hampshire, be there or you're kicked out of the entire liberty movement. I kid you not, they are making a list. Okay, no, really, I am kidding, I lied. Okay, so Porkfest is the, uh, premier liberty event of the year, and if you can get there, be sure and do so. Um... Here's the big announcement for today. If you listen to my, uh, uh, you know, I've been doing these announcements for the Seacoast Annual uh, Freedom Expo and for Pork Fest and for the Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. And uh, and these are just a courtesy. I'm, I'm just doing this to try to support good folks who are trying to do a good thing. And so I've been uh, giving the commercial for the Seacoast Annual uh, Freedom Expo which was originally going to be at the Exeter Town Hall in Exeter, New Hampshire, and then lightning struck and there was a fire. So the folks up there started jumping around trying to find a new place to put it, and they came up with an address that I gave here on this broadcast, uh, podcast, broadcast, podcast. I gave uh, the address as 29 Main Street in Seabrook, New Hampshire, and the problem is, you know, if you try to look that up in Google, Google will force it to go to uh, 29 South Main Street in Seabrook, New Hampshire, which is not, indeed, where the um, Seacoast Annual Freedom Expo will be. That's a blank field, an empty field. So don't go. Don't trust Google. And I don't know what, what your particular uh, robotic control device on your dashboard uh, you know, will tell you, but do not go to... Uh, 29 South Main in Seabrook, New Hampshire, expecting to find the Seacoast Annual Freedom Expo. You will find an empty field with several other people going, why are we here? Um, If I could give you easy directions, I would, but the best I can tell you is that it's going to be at the Trinity United Church's Parish House, which is slightly different from their main building. They have, very close to each other, it appears as though the Trinity United Church has both a church building and a parish house. And the best I can tell, they're across the street from each other, uh, like basically right next door to the post office in um, in uh, Seabrook. So the way to find that, yes, it is 29 Main Street, but the way to find it is to uh, find that intersection of Main Street, which is also Route 1, um, the intersection there of Folly Mill Road, Lafayette Road, and Main Street. And it's one of those old-time 
intersections where three roads come together in the same spot and it was not designed for cars and now we forced fit cars onto it so anyway um find that on google or on whatever map program that you use or whatever again it's the the trinity united church parish house and it's right on the corner of uh route one which is main street and foley mill road and it's right at the intersection with Lafayette Road in Seabrook, New Hampshire. And that's going to be uh, April 27th. It's a one-day event, and there's no charge. It's free. It's going to be an all-day thing, and there's all kinds of junk to do. You don't have to sign up ahead of time. Just show up and have some fun. And this is like 300 yards from the border with Massachusetts. And I was going to make some jokes about, you know, it's so close to the border of Massachusetts that you could dig tunnels underneath and go back and forth you know, kind of a, a referring to uh, like, um, you know, the tunnels between Mexico and California and so forth. But then looking at the situation in Google, uh, it appears that a good portion of Seabrook is uh, a graveyard. So you might not want to be digging between New Hampshire and Massachusetts in the Seabrook area that you could find some unpleasant surprises. Now on to the first annual Midwest Peace and Liberty Fest. That's hosted by the Michigan Peace and Liberty Coalition. It will be at Brighton Recreation Area in Brighton, Michigan. And my wife and I have reserved our spots. We hope to be there Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, August 17th, 18th, and 19th. This is going to be, uh, it is not, uh, you know, Pork Fest West or something like that. This is going to just be a family fun camping event to get together and, and just you know, have some fun and talk and roast some hot dogs and, and just get together. You know, it's it's nothing really super official. It's just a, a good time to get together. August 17th, 17th, 18th, and 19th, 17th, 18th, and 19th, Brighton, Michigan. So, um, and we're continuing to work on our Bad Quaker Top 40 podcasts, and we have a pretty good list going over at the forum on that. The forum, you can find the forum going to badquaker.com. Look on the right-hand side, up in the upper right-hand side, underneath the picture of the all the handsome dudes across the top. And click the button for the forum there. And you can uh, navigate around the forum and find the, the Bad Quaker Top 40 podcast list. And add to it. And uh, And I want to also, before I give up on the notes for today... I want to uh, I want to again thank the donors. I think in my excitement of having donors uh, rush in the way that they did in the last couple of weeks, I think I may have sent out a couple of duplicate thank you notes. But uh, sorry if you got more than one thank you note. I was just so excited and confused by having so many donors rush in. We are uh, almost halfway on our budget of uh, of having uh, everything that we need for um, for Pork Fest. The uh, actual uh, campgrounds is taken care of. Uh, a bunch of the other expenses we've already either paid for or have set aside the money for it. So, again, we're about halfway there. We really appreciate the help from the donors on that. Um, now, today, for today's topic, I'm going to talk about the foundational presuppositions of statism. But before I get into the foundational presuppos- presuppositions of statism... I, I, I kind of have to talk about this horrible event that took place in Boston. You know, if you're a regular listener of the podcast, I don't normally do a lot of news items or, you know, tyranny of the day. Or I, I usually try to avoid that. I try to go more with the bigger philosophical lessons, history, 
um, how things relate to each other in a bigger sense. But it's just about impossible to, you know, to not say something about this horrible thing in Boston. Uh, as as far as we know at this point, there were uh, three people killed, and they're saying about 180 were injured. Now, there, there was reactions, you know, there was a lot of confusion um, in all of this, and so there was conflicting reports, and, and there was a lot of excitement, and you know, emotions ran really, really uh, wild there for a few days, and a lot of people said some things, and and there was a, and there was hurt feelings, and you know, whenever something like this happens, you're always going to have emotions like shock and fear and anger, dread, pity, sorrow. You all these things are normal, but they have a tendency to fog people's judgment, and they'll make people say things that they wouldn't normally say, or they'll make you think things that you wouldn't normally think. Or they'll make you accept things that you normally wouldn't accept. But another reaction to a situation like this is suspicion. And we also saw that. There was a, you know, I think for a good reason, there's a lot of suspicion uh, among libertarians. We have a tendency to understand that we're probably better off if we don't just blindly accept what we're handed. So there's just naturally going to be a lot of suspicion uh, anytime you have an event like this. Uh, a horrible and tragic event, and it's in and, and it falls through the way that that thing did. You're always going to have certain levels of suspicion, and you know it, that's that's normal too. I mean, it's healthy to 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 have a certain level of suspicion in situations like this, but even suspicion can fog your judgment. It can cause you to you know to start looking for details. Where there where there maybe aren't any, or it starts causing you to look at random events and making things out of them that that didn't really happen. So you know you have to you have to try to keep your head uh, during situations like this, and and this brings on what some people considered cold. Uh, uh, you know, like people comparing the emotions about uh, around uh, related to the incident in Boston. And they compare that to emotions uh, when similar things happen other places around the world. And there's accusations, well, I didn't see you act in this way when, when this happened or when that happened. And, you know, hard feelings come in. And it's really easy on both sides for misunderstandings to take place, for either for very emotional people to think that some people are cold and calloused and don't care, or for people who are trying to look at it with less emotion to think, oh, all those people are just sheeple. They're, they're not thinking. They're just reacting. But it, it's really imperative that in an emergency, uh, in, in pretty much any emergency, the more level-headed that you can remain, the better your chance of survival is going to be. But it's still important, even if you're just an observer, even if you're at a distance from the actual event that's taking place, it's still important to remain level-headed when you're viewing uh, an emergency like this, even if it's a, at a distance, it's it's really important to stay level-headed. Um, you know, uh, Alex Jones. I hate to I hate to point fingers or or whatever, but Alex Jones um, has come up with this accusation that there were SEAL teams there, and you know I understand his enthusiasm, but. Um, looking even at his evidence and just accepting on the surface what he's trying to bring out, I don't think there's any evidence there was SEAL teams. There 
very likely were contractors there. Now, it's important to understand what I mean when I say contractors. You know, we're not talking about guys with hammers and, and utility belts and, you know, and tape measures. Um, in the world of security, contractors are referred to, sometimes they're referred to as mercenaries or a, a variety of other derogatory um, phrases. But Essentially, you know, and, and just, and, you know, uh, Alex Jones types are throwing out words like, oh, it's a Blackwater this or that, or it's a, and they name several other companies like that. Well, of course, Blackwater doesn't exist anymore, but it doesn't matter what the name of the company is now, you still get the, the impression that that's what they're talking about. Well, that's not, maybe yes, maybe no, but that's not necessarily, you know, just to put that stamp on it doesn't mean, all right, well, that... That just satisfies all questions. We now know that it's an evil thing because Alex Jones has, has uh, you know, proven that these guys were mercenaries or SEAL or a SEAL team or whatever. Well, again, this can all fog your judgment of a very serious situation, and we're all going to be better off if we think things through slowly and consider it a little bit better. Now, in defense of Alex Jones and his, um, and his you know, what some have uh, referred to as wild conspiracies, we do have this fairly large group of men, and I say men because I didn't see any women. I only saw men in the pictures so far that I've, that I've viewed, but they're all in matching khaki boots, uh, matching khaki cargo pants, uh, matching black jackets, with these um, Secret Service-like devices in their ears that they can talk into their hand and hear through their ear. That sounds a little weird, but, but you know what I'm talking about. This, uh, their communication devices, they typically have a speaker uh, somewhere around their wrist and a single earplug in one ear that they listen to each other on. And quite a few of them are wearing large, bulky backpacks, uh, all clearly of the same design, same, uh, you know, consistent in design. Several of them were wearing ball caps with the Punisher logo. And that, you know, Alex Jones tries to point that, uh, point to that as absolute evidence. Well, there they are. That's it. They're Navy SEALs. There it is. They've got the cap on. Well, yeah, except, you know, there are 14-year-old kids that own those. I mean, the Punisher logo is very popular with a lot more groups than just Navy SEALs. Um, as a matter of fact, among contractors, uh, again, the derogatory term being mercenaries, but among contractors, there's a surprising amount of, um, of comic book reading. Uh, you know, I know some contractors. I communicate with them on a pretty regular basis. And, um, you know, the, the Punisher series and the Punisher logo... All this stuff is real popular with a lot of contractors. And another thing about this logo and comparing it with the way that they're outfitted, you know, whether we're talking about the boots or the pants or the jackets or whatever, there's, there's a thing that people in the security industry tend to do. And this, uh, this is, this is kind of thrown out a wide net. But if you check it out for yourself, you'll see that what I'm talking about is correct. If, um, if the industry, if, if individuals in the industry who are uh, the more respected individuals in the industry, if, if they tend to move towards a particular product, whether that's a particular type of, um, of uh, uh, utility belt, or if that's a particular type of weapon, or if that's a particular type of camouflage style, 
then others in that same profession will begin mimicking them. And, and there's uh, good reasons and there's not so good reasons. First off, if you've got the top people, and I'm saying I'm not talking about top as in top executives. I'm talking about hardcore guys who have been in really bad situations and are still alive. When you've got guys like that that say, this is the best utility belt to wear, that's why I wear this utility belt, then other people who also want to live in that profession will tend to think, hey, this guy probably knows what he's talking about. So if I'm going to buy a utility belt, I might as well buy the one that has been tested and that this guy recognizes as being good. Well, the same thing applies to things like shoes and boots and pants and jackets and things like this. So just because they're wearing what essentially looks like a uniform doesn't mean that it's issued as a uniform by a controlling body like the CIA or the Navy SEALs or Blackwater or whoever you're demonizing at the particular moment. It can just as easily mean that, yes, they are indeed contractors, and they chose to buy that stuff because it's been field-tested enough that they know that they're very, you know, they're very comfortable with spending their money on that. Some of those khaki, those tactical khaki pants tactical khaki tactical tack some of those pants can cost hundreds of dollars because they have built into them uh uh concealed carry compartments that are reinforced and and so forth so so there are reasons why um that a contractor would be wearing similar pants to another contractor not just because they're military and they're issued that way Okay, so so keep that in mind. And there's a lot of mimicry among these guys. They, yeah, the, you'll see the uh, the you'll see the Punisher logo um, used over and over because the same reason a lot of uh, a lot of geeks like you know um, Star Trek or whatever. I mean, it's a similar breed of people that are attracted to these jobs. So it shouldn't be all, all that unusual that they sort of dress alike and act alike, and you see the same kind of sunglasses and ball caps and stuff. So that alone is not proof that this is a SEAL operation and there were SEALs there. You have to, you have to, you know, uh, push the emotions aside, even the ones of paranoia and suspicion and things like that. You need to push them aside and really look for, for better, um, look for more of a core in what you're thinking of and, and less on the, um, on the outliers. So now that that brings up the next logical uh, question. So if they were just contractors, if they were not Navy SEALs, and if the, and we set aside some of the paranoia, and if if we just say, okay, well, why were contractors there? Was something expected? Well, there was, uh, uh, and Alex Jones is reporting this, as, as others are too. Natural News is talking about this. There were announcements over loudspeakers that uh, that what was going on was just a drill to stay calm. There was a, I think it was a Boston Globe um, announcement that there was going to be controlled explosions in, uh, in, in Boston and in downtown Boston area. It was in a different area, slightly different area than where the marathon was. But still, there's indications that, you know, something was known ahead of time. Some, some preparations were being made. So, again, we need to keep all these things in perspective and ask yourself what bits of information are important and what conclusions can we draw from these? And then, once you do this calmly, then you can begin to narrow down and say, well, well, if this is like this and if this is like this, then which conclusion does it match the best? 
And then since these are all factors we don't actually know, then we can only come to, we, we can narrow down what it can't be, and then we're, we can be left with what it can be. And then we can start making a judgment about it. And I also want to keep in mind, uh, going back to the perspective issue, keep in mind that I just heard this morning about this horrible explosion in Waco, Texas, in a chemical plant in a, in a fertilizer factory. And they're saying somewhere between 5 and 15 people were killed and maybe as much as 200 injured. And it uh, was such a blast that it made a 2.1 on the Richter scale. People felt it for miles away. So, um, you know, I'm not downplaying what happened in Boston. I'm saying that horrible things happen all the time. And so we need to keep them in perspective and take emotions out of it, take paranoia out of it, and analyze things with a little bit clearer mind. Uh, Keep in mind on Monday that there were blasts in Baghdad that killed at least 32 people and wounded more than 200 people. Yesterday in uh, Yemen, there was um, two drone strikes that killed at least five people, and it's unknown how many were injured. And yesterday in Pakistan, there were two separate drone strikes that, again, killed at least five people, and again, we don't know how many are injured. So if you look at this in a bigger scale, don't just look at the fact that, hey, this is in the country I live in, therefore it's important, or I watch this on TV, therefore it's important, or I see the pictures on the Internet, therefore it's important. Take your mind out of that a little bit and try to see a little bit bigger, uh, a little bit bigger thing in this. According to the Bureau of Investigative Journalism, on average 25% of drone deaths in Pakistan are uh, civilian. They're not considered militant. But even when you hear that number, 25%, are civilian. When you when you hear that number, keep in mind that what the definition of militant is in these days is any male of a combat age. So if you realize that any male of a combat age is considered a militant, and twenty five percent of drone deaths are non militants, I mean the numbers here start to get real staggering. What would we? How would we look at what this horrible tragedy in Waco or Boston? How would we define this if we, if, we, if we went by the assumption to begin with that any male of combat age is automatically a militant? How would we view what happened in, in uh, Boston or in Waco? And I know that sounds cold, but you have to bring in a certain amount of, um, of reality into these situations to, to get a, a clearer understanding of them. There are estimates that as high as 98% of all drone strike casualties are actually civilians. And that's, inclu- that's considering that this, this fake uh, uh, definition of militant of any male of combat age is completely bogus. If you go by the actual numbers, some of the estimates are that it takes, um, for, for every one suspected terrorist, 50 non-suspected terrorists are killed. And again, this is making that distinction between what we're going to call a militant and a suspected terrorist. And keep in mind, what does it take to be a suspected terrorist? Well, if you, uh, if you uh, have a dispute with your neighbor two hills over and you feel that he owes you a goat and he feels he doesn't owe you a goat and you're really angry at him about this goat and there happens to be one of the CIA informants that's in your village and you're like, you know what, over there is a, is a terrorist, I'm sure of it. Why do, how do you know that? Well, he stole my goat. 
Wait, how, how, was, how's that make him a terrorist? Well, he's going to use that goat for terrorist purposes. I heard he's going to make a bomb out of that goat and send him into town. Bingo, that guy is a suspected terrorist. I mean, it's not quite that simplistic, but it almost is. Um, turning in your uh, somebody from another village, or turning in some you know uh, uh, somebody who has disrespected one of your relatives, or there, there's all kinds of situations like that that are documented, where uh, where people have used the CIA informants to get somebody killed for for some personal reason in one of these countries like Pakistan and Yemen or uh, Afghanistan or or wherever they have done this. Um, to settle private uh, disputes, and it's just an easy way. Well, just get him droned. And who cares if half his family goes out with him? I get now. I now I have all of his goats. You see, this happens. This is the truth. This actually happens like this. The other thing to keep in mind is when we're talking about these CIA uh, drone hits. There's this uh, this double tap strategy that uh, that the CIA has been using. It's where the CIA will send in a drone to hit a target, and then they will pause until rescue workers come in to try to you know to try to get people out of maybe a burning house or try to help the 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 victims or or whatever. And then they'll drop in another uh, Hellfire missile to the same location specifically to target the rescuers. Now think about that. If you're if you're like uh, you know we have to support the police. We have to oh the the firemen are heroes. We have to support the local heroes. Well, think about this. Uh, think about how horrible it would be if 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 ten minutes or fifteen minutes or thirty minutes into the Boston explosion, another explosion would have happened in the exact same location. Think about how horrible that would have been. And that's exactly what the CIA intentionally does. They'll 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 kill a militant what they're calling a militant and then they'll wait for the funeral for that militant and they'll drop in a, a strike on the funeral taking out women children mourners they don't care they they just don't care that's what they call a double tap and and it's a normal thing so um so back to alex jones alex jones may be a lot of things um you know if you listen to the mainstream media alex jones is a nut he may be. I don't know. He may be. He seems like it sometimes. He seems to me like a nut sometimes. He may also just be a showman, a P.T. Barnum. He may just be, you know, uh, he's got a good thing going on. He's making money. He's, you know, uh, that could be. Uh, sometimes it seems to me that he's just a showman. It's been said that he's a, a, COINTEL, a, pro, a COINTEL pro, a plant, Um that could be too. Watching the film where he disrupted, was it John Bush's uh, thing down there, for, rally for the Second Amendment, that he came in and disrupted the way he did? Sometimes sometimes I wonder if he's a plant. I really wonder that. So, uh, could he be a status tool? Is he? I don't know. I don't know. Or is he the one lone voice of reason out there crying in the darkness? I kind of doubt it, but he could be. He, he could be. I know for me personally, I don't listen to him any more than I have to because he simply annoys me. And, and, and that's a personal thing. That's a, you know, I don't like cheerleading. I don't see the purpose of it. I, and I wish there was a way to get information like what he spreads without the cheerleader effects. I wish that were possible.
But now let's consider some of these possibilities. We have the Alex Jones argument that it was a planned false flag event with with patsies, that's his word, with patsies set up to take the fall. And and why would that be? Well, it's an excuse to uh to bring in more tyranny. That's that's Alex Jones's argument. Well, what other arguments? See, we have to stay calm on this. We have to think about it. What other arguments could there be? Well, there's the the crazed lone bomber uh, with some kind of private agenda. You know, it's some uh, it's somebody that has something against runners, or it has somebody. It's somebody that's you know. I mean, there's any number of uh, uh, scenarios that would support the crazed lo- crazed lone bomber uh, scenario. Um, the other thing it could be is, as the government is probably going to try to tell us, it was an organized strike by some evil, evil terrorist network, some some group of evil terrorists that uh, you know uh, that planned this over a long period of time, and they finally pulled it off. Well, that's that's the two government, um, the two favorite government excuses: the crazed lone bomber and the organized um, evil terrorist network. So, the, so one of those two will probably become the official story one way or the other. And what's the other possibility? Well, it very well could have been a planned exercise that just went horribly wrong. Um, if, you know, all the guys in their, uh, in like Alex Jones is calling them their, uh, uh, their Navy SEALs uniforms, if all those guys really were there to desensitize the cops as to having backpacks all over the place, and they were going to have some kind of staged event where they were practicing and they were just going to you know, go through it all safely and then something went horribly wrong and bombs blew up and it was bad and, and that's terrible. Well, they'll never admit to that. But that is a possibility. It's not a very likely possibility, but it is a possibility. So we take these things and we look at them and we say, okay, now let's, let's try to leave emotion out and let's try to think about these things and let's try to eliminate what could not have happened and then we can consider what maybe did happen. Okay, now stick with me. Uh, it seems like I'm not talking at all about the topic today, which is the found- foundational presuppositions of statism. But as you're about to see when I come back from the break, that's exactly what I've been talking about right along. Do you have an Amazon account? If you don't, let me encourage you to set one up. Setting up an account is free and it's easy, and Amazon has great prices, and in most cases you can avoid paying sales tax. Plus, if you're careful and lump your purchases together, you can get free shipping. And Amazon has almost anything you can think of, plus it's safer and cheaper than driving all over town. When you buy stuff, if you follow the Amazon link at badquaker.com, Amazon will give Bad Quaker a tiny portion of the purchase. It won't cost you any extra, but you'll be supporting this podcast. Thank you. Okay, thanks for sticking with me through the break. Now, uh, like I teased, um, or like I said, the the topic for today is the foundation is the foundational presuppositions of statism. And actually, I've been moving in that direction through this whole discussion about this horrible event in Boston. Um, I, I talked about. You know the 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 different possibilities that it could be. Alex Jones's argument that it's a planned false flag event. It could have been a crazed lone bomber. Uh, it could have been an organized strike by an evil terrorist network, or it could have been a planned exercise that just went horribly wrong. But but before I push that any further, 
Let me, uh, let me read a quote for you. One of the great mistakes is to judge policies and programs by their intentions rather than their results. That's uh, Milton Friedman said that, and that's wrong. And, um, and the reason that that's wrong is that morals always supersede results, and, in, and good intentions are worse than useless. So, so I'll agree with him to a certain extent that, um, that it's a mistake to judge policies by their intentions. Yeah, it's a mistake to judge them by their intentions, but it's also a mistake to judge them by their perceived results. You know, Bastiat, again, like I like to refer to uh, over and over and over, shows us that the results that you see are not always the only results. Um, you might have in good intentions, and you might take actions that appear to be good. You may think, oh, look, I did this. It's great, wonderful. We broke this window, and now look how busy all these people are working. We put people to work. That's great. But the truth of the, of the matter is, there are consequences to actions, specifically when we're talking about government. There are consequences to actions that you can't even perceive. Sometimes we don't know about for years later. Sometimes we never know about how horrible these consequences are. You know, I got an email not long ago, just a couple days ago, I think, from a person who was talking about how we don't know what the government has messed up. Things like the light bulb law, you know, where we're not allowed to have the old-style light bulbs. We're not allowed to buy and sell those anymore, manufacture them in the U.S. We have to have the squiggly light bulbs that are weird and dangerous and everything. Well, just like that, we don't know over the ages how many silly government policies have had ripple effects through all kinds of things through our life that, that, we, that we don't even know. We can't judge them. So... Um, so Milton Friedman is absolutely wrong. You do not judge uh, on the results. You don't judge whether something is good or bad based on the results. Think about, um, you know, if that's the case, then the, we're talking about ends justifying means. And the ends can never justify the means. To, to, reject, uh, to reject morals over results is to ultimately accept aggression as the most effective method for human advancement. You think about it just for a second. Which is easier for you to work hard and and save and you know spend a lifetime toiling and trying to improve your life or just to steal? Which is easier? Which is most efficient? Well, it's more efficient to steal than it is to work. Now, you might say, oh, but Crime never pays. Uh, you're believing a status lie. You know what? Think about General Motors and think about the uh, Los Zetas uh, cartel. Now, who is more efficient, General Motors or the Los Zetas uh, cartel? Well, I don't know. Um, they're both bringing in massive amounts of money, uh, except GM is not making a profit, or if they are, it's a, it's a new thing for them. They're not used to it. They couldn't make a profit without government constantly handing them advantages. Well, the Los Zetas cartel makes uh, they make a pretty good profit. Which which do you think has a lot of useless union bosses standing around getting paid to basically do nothing? Uh, it, would it would it be GM or the Los Zetas cartel that has um, you know uh, buildings full of 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 lawyers just trying to figure out how to word their commercials so that they don't end up getting sued by anybody? Which, which one? Which one, the Los Zetas cartel or General Motors, spends massive amounts of money on advertising campaigns to get you to buy their product? Which one? Which one is more efficient? 
of course the Los Zetas cartel is way more efficient than General Motors. But does that mean we should then assume that what the Los Zetas uh, cartel does is good? You see, Milton Friedman was, mis- was very mistaken in rejecting the idea that morals are what's important and you should only look for results. And I know I'm paraphrasing here, and I know I'm making a little bit of a straw man, but ultimately, no, that, that's, that's what the statist mind does. That's what the statist mind produces. It produces a justification for immoral activity based on perceived results. So then, poor Milton Friedman, in an attempt to make government more efficient, gave us uh, payroll, payroll deduction. And in doing so, made taxes more palatable to the American public. And in doing so, made it possible for the American government to take more in taxes than they'd ever taken before, which made it possible for the American government to begin killing on a scale that they had never gotten away with killing before, specifically in uh, bombing civilian populations in North Korea and then going on to do the same in Vietnam. Remember what I was talking about on a recent podcast? about the deaths in Cambodia, and all that was done looking at how to obtain an end rather than thinking about the morality of whether or not your activity was justified. You see, a mind fogged by statism is more dangerous than a mind fogged by fear, hate, or even religious zealotry. And you might think, oh, no, 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 what about the Crusades? Well, you've been lied to. The Crusades were all about the state. Oh, what about religious wars? Everyone was the state. Everyone was governments battling governments under the guise of religion. Oh, but what about, uh, you know, when the Pope did this or that, and what about, yeah, well, he was a government. He had his own army. For a long time during the Middle Ages, popes had their own armies, and they functioned as governments. So that fits right in there. So, again, a mind fogged by statism is more dangerous than a mind fogged by fear, hate, or even religious zealotry. So what are the foundational presuppositions of statism? Well, the best I can tell, they're the belief in vertical collectivism, that's, you know, being enforced, an enforced hierarchy for the good of mankind or for the good of humanity. Uh, the concept of there being great leaders, we have to have leaders, we have to have great leaders. Great leaders are going to solve all of our problem. Whatever the problem is, that new president will take care of it. Or whatever the problem is, is the fault of this old president, and what we need to do is get us a new president. All this idea of, the, of having the great leader, and the great leader will save us, and, and we must have a leader, all that stuff is a part of the foundational presuppositions of statism. And finally, and most people don't think about this, But one of the foundational presuppositions of statism is human sacrifice. Human sacrifice has walked hand in hand with the state. And now a lot of people say, oh, human sacrifice is used in paganism, blah, 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 blah. Whether or not not ritual sacrifice pops up here and there is not as important to realize that it always exists in conjunction with the state. And... What people don't realize sometimes is that there are types of ritual sacrifice. Um, well, war is a type of ritual sacrifice that people don't often think of in that in that category. Um, now, if you think about it just a little bit, if you already believe in these three 
um, these three guiding pre- presuppositions um, of vertical collectivism, the great leader or, or great man, and human sacrifice by either ritual or by war or whatever. You have to have war to defend the state. You have to have war to defend us from those guys over on that uh, other side of that imaginary line that some, some politician drew. So if you believe these three guiding presuppositions, I'm sorry, but the loss of three people in Boston is a small sacrifice to obtain a society where security is absolute and the enemies of the state are crushed. If you really believe in these three guiding presuppositions of, of, uh, of statism, then really, three loss, the, loss, the loss of three people in Boston, not a big deal. The loss of, uh, um, it, you know, if you can kill 50 people attending a wedding in order to kill one suspected terrorist, if you've already accepted these presuppositions of statism, then killing 50 people at a wedding to get that one suspected terrorist, it would be well worth it to you to save a whole nation. That's how these things are justified in a person's mind. And if you can accept that it's okay to kill the 50 in the wedding party to get that one terrorist, then why would you object to three? Uh, why would you object to three being killed in Boston to save a nation? Do you, do you see the link of how the mind works from one thing to the other to justify it? Now, I'm not saying that I believe that these deaths are justified. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying this is how the statist mind works in order to come to a position where it can begin to justify horrendous activity, things that you would never accept under any other circumstances. Now, if there really is a worldwide war on terror, if that's true, if all we've been told for the last, what, 12 years? If all this is true, that there really is a worldwide war on terror, and we're all in danger of this horrible thing coming to us, then that war justifies the deaths of civilians, whether we're talking about the 50 people at a wedding party in Afghanistan, or if we're talking about three dead people in Boston. If it's really true that there's a worldwide war on t- terror, and you accept those, those presupposed notions, those presuppositions, then a few more deaths in Boston, for the sake of humanity, is acceptable. Now, when you think of something like the bombing of Dresden in February of 1945, I know I just jumped there a pretty wide distance. But I want you to consider the statist mind frame. Consider how a statist thinks. In 1945, in February of 1945, the city of Dresden, Germany was bombed, was firebombed. That was three months before the end of the war. Three months before Germany gave a complete, unconditional surrender. To give you a kind of concept of what was going on in Germany in February of 1945, the Red Army, the Russian Army, was already within firing distance of Berlin. Hitler was hiding in his bunker and had been for over a month. Um, Dresden was considered a refugee center. It was of no military value, and that was admitted later on, although some military uh, historians nowadays try to claim otherwise. But it has been admitted by both the British and um, American uh, military that Dresden was of no military value. And uh, there's evidence that Stalin personally asked 
Churchill, and Roosevelt to bomb Dresden. Now, why would Stalin ask that? Well, who knows what's in the heart of men. But we do know that somewhere between 20 and 30,000 civilians were killed in the bombing of Dresden. It's hard to determine exactly because the way the fire spread in Dresden and the fact that both um, high percussion uh, uh, bombs were used and um, and fire bombs were used. There's a lot of uh, a lot of the bodies were incinerated, and there's no evidence of them. But the the probably the best estimate is somewhere between twenty and thirty thousand civilians were killed in Dresden. Now, uh, right after it happened, I think it was within a month, if I recall. Yeah, it was. It was less than a month later. Um, the British Air Commodore. Colin McKay Grierson told jur- journalists, he said, and this is a quote, first of all, they, uh, and when he says they, he's talking about Dresden and the surrounding towns. He says, first of all, they are the centers to which evacuees are being moved. They are centers of cu- communication through which traffic is moving across to the Russian front and from the Western front to the East. And they are sufficiently close to the Russian front for the Russians to continue the successful prosecution of their battle. I think these three reasons probably cover the bombing. So the three reasons. One, there were evacuees there. Two, uh, it was a center of communication. And three, it was close to the Russian front. That's the three things that he gave. And the number one thing in his, in his words, he said, first of all, First of all, it's where the evacuees were being moved. In other words, he was admitting right there that what they knew they were doing was they were bombing refugees. He knew that. He stated that as the first reason. First of all, we had to kill the refugees. That's what uh, Grierson says in his statement. Now, the United, uh, oh, I'm sorry, the uh, Associated Press. Um, was their reporting on this. And their take of it was they reported that the Allies had begun resorting to terror bombings. That's what they called it, terror bombings. When one of the reporters there pre- uh, pressed uh, Grierson to clarify what he was talking about with on the topic of the refugees, uh, Grierson said that the bombing of Dresden was to destroy what is left of German morale. In other words, we're going to kill refugees to, to, to change the way people in Germany think about the war. This is the very definition of, of terrorism. When you use terror to, get, to politically motivate people, that's what terrorism is. So the Associated Press correctly reported that the Allied forces were using terror bombings rather than attacking what was left, of the, the fragments of what was left of the German army. In response to the AP story, Churchill wrote on March 28, 1945, this is a little over a month after the bombing of Dresden, Churchill said, and this is a direct quote, It seems to me that the moment has come when the question of bombing of German cities simply for the sake of increasing terror, though under other pretexts, should be reviewed. So in that statement, Churchill admitted that they were bombing German cities simply for the, for the purpose of increasing terror, even though they were using other pretexts. 
That's what Churchill said in that sentence. He admitted that they are lying as to why they're bombing German cities, that it was strictly for the use of terror. Now, if you take this a little bit further, there's a very famous pilot named Chuck Yeager, and he was a uh, he was a fighter pilot in World War II. He was a uh, believe he was uh, an ace pilot. I think he was an ace in World War II and the Korean War, if I recall. And he might have uh, no, I don't think he flew in Vietnam. But he Chuck Yeager was the first person to break the, the uh, speed the uh, speed of sound the the sound barrier. Anyway, in his autobiography uh, titled Yeager, an autobiography by Chuck Yeager. Uh, Jaeger, an autobiography by Chuck Jaeger. Not not really inventive on the title there, but anyway, in his autobiography, he talks about how he disliked the uh, the low level strafing missions during World War II, where they were given orders to shoot anything that moved. And some people have disputed Jaeger's account, but I have a pretty high opinion of Chuck Jaeger, and uh, I think if he said that he was ordered to do that and he admitted that he did do that. I'll, I, I, I bet he did it. Um, now, what he's basically describing here is when they would uh, bomb, when, when the Allied forces would bomb a city, the fighter planes were told to strafe the, uh, the roads leading away from the city because the refugees would come pouring out of the city as the city's being bombed. You see, the, the city is, it would take hours for a city to be bombed. So as the city is literally being bombed, people are running out of the city on the roads leading away from the city. And the, and the fighter planes were told to, to, to fly down very low altitudes and shoot people on the roads that were attempting to flee the cities. And so Jaeger saying he found that distasteful and he disliked it and he knew other pilots disliked it as well. But they did it. They continued to do it. That was their job. That's what soldiers do in a war. You see, in a war zone, civilians um, civilians are dehumanized. They're objectified. And if a soldier doesn't do this, if the soldier doesn't put it into his mind that, that, that civilians, that the people that he's killing, if he doesn't put it into his mind that they're, just, they're not humans, they're just objects, and, and oftentimes they'll use derogatory uh, terminology in reference to the civilians so that they don't have to think of them as humans. If the soldier doesn't do that, he risks his own sanity and he risks his own life. If he fails to do this, very important thing, the soldier risks his own sanity and he risks his own life. And, it, and it's just as true when it comes to dehumanizing people and objectifying people. It's just as true in the war rooms as it is in the battlefields. Except the difference is that in the war rooms, they never really see the faces. They never see the blood. So there's some terminology that comes into use. During Vietnam, um, there was some terminology that came into use in reference to just shooting civilians. And uh, they were they were they used phrases like free fire zones and Indian country and turkey shoots. This is how they would justify this behavior. Um, they would say, well, you know, if anybody is out and about um, after dark, well, then obviously they're out there for bad reasons. Shoot them. Uh, if somebody is out there in an area that's already been cleared, um, obviously they're bad guys. Shoot them. You don't have to identify them. You can't take the risk of identifying them. Shoot them. 
You see, this is the, the state mentality that gets into your mind that justifies this kind of activity. Because if people didn't do that, the battlefield would drive every single soldier insane. In Afghanistan, the Soviet, the Soviet soldiers in Afghanistan during the 1980s referred to this as free hunting. And it was their policy that if a person was on a road, then they didn't shoot them. But if they were anywhere off the road, then they were, uh, it was a free hunt. They could shoot them. And so that was the Soviets' uh, way of dealing with the Afghanistan people, which really bothered a lot of the Soviet soldiers because they knew that in a desert uh, culture, lots of times travelers didn't use roads. Lots of times if you're just going from one village to another or from one farm to another, you don't use a road. And, and uh, uh, that really bothered some of the Soviet soldiers. But, um, but they did it anyway. Now, it's been alleged that since Rumsfeld, uh, since the Rumsfeld days, and even up until the present, and even up till now, that some aspects of the Pentagon have, uh, have made statements that, that, that we're in a global free-fire zone. This word, this phrase is, is, is sort of catching on, this global free-fire zone. It, it, if, if you consider that, you know, the whole world is the battlefield against the war on terrorism. If you accept that, if, that's, if you've already believed that, um, which has been pushed to us for all this time, if you believe that the whole world is a battlefield against the war on terror, if you believe that, then you have to understand that the next logical step for this in, in status thinking, the next logical step is that we are in a global free-fire zone. It's, it's, just a, it's just a reality of accepting this fake war on terror. So then let's go back and think about these, these possibilities, um, these possibilities about Boston. A planned false flag event with patsies set to take the fall, the, the Alex Jones argument. And then we have the three non-Alex Jones arguments. A crazed lo lone bomber with some private agenda. That could be. An organized strike by an evil terrorist network. That could be. A planned exercise gone horribly wrong. Kind of hard to stretch your imagination, but it could be. A planned false flag event with patsies to set up the fall. Why? Well, we covered that already, to provide an excuse for more tyranny. Okay, a crazed lone bomber with some private agenda. Well, uh... Uh, government security is always going to fail in these situations, and more government security will just make it worse. I did a, a I did an article once called "The Dog in the Yard," where I showed that um, you know you have a dog that likes to dig and likes to escape your yard. I called it the escape artist dog. If you have a dog like that who likes to dig and likes to escape your yard, you can never keep him in your yard because once he figures out he can escape. He will spend his life, every, every waking moment, trying to figure out how he's going to escape next. And that's how the crazed lone bomber or crazed lone gunman thinks. They have their whole life that they center on just accomplishing this one crazy thing. You can't possibly, uh, a government, a central, central organized, central planned government can't possibly um, stop the one crazed, one-off crazed lone uh, crazy like that. Okay, an organized strike by an evil terrorist network. Um, well, all the hatred of America that we're told, whether real or imagined, 
is due strictly to American government policy. You know, if uh, if the United States wasn't over there messing with the different countries and they're propping up dictators and bombing them and doing all the things that the that the United States government has been doing in the Middle East for a hundred years. If the government of the United States weren't doing those things to begin with, there would be no evil terrorist networks. People living in the Middle East could care less about people living in the United States. There, there would be no interest in it whatsoever. So again, more government just makes the situation worse. All right, so, a, uh, so um, the, the last one, a planned exercise gone horribly wrong. Um, well, if that's the case, do we want these central planners doing more central planning? Do we really need them? Uh, somebody this inept, somebody this worthless, trying to, to plan uh, on our safety by doing this kind of stuff? No, that would only make it worse. So, so even in the least likely uh, scenario of a planned exercise gone horribly wrong, the last thing we need is more government involvement. So let's fall back on these foundational presuppositions of statism. Vertical collectivism, uh, the enforced hierarchy for the good of humanity. The, the idea of great leaders, you know, um, Obama will save us. Obama's there today. As I'm, as I'm recording this today, uh, on Thursday, Obama is in Boston att attending services. Oh, because he has to. Because him being there will make things better. You see, just like George Bush on 9-11, he, he, not that day, but he came running down there and made his speech and everybody cried because the great man will always save us. And human sacrifice, human sacrifice, whether it's the sacrifice of your son or daughter on the, on the fires of Baal or whether it's your son or daughter in a uniform or whether it's your son or daughter shooting someone or shooting a, you know, dropping a, a hellfire missile into a wedding party and killing both the guilty and the innocent alike, or hoping at least that one of those is guilty. No matter what, whether it's in, a, in, in levels of war or whether it's in front of the statue, sacrifice, human sacrifice, is absolutely a foundational presupposition of statism. But if you can break your mind loose of these three things, collectivism, the great leader, the great man, and the adoption of human sacrifice, put them out of your head. Don't accept them as a possibility. No, we don't need to send one more soldier anywhere to die for me. I'll take care of me. How about that? How about we reject collectivism and we reject the, the duty, the idea that the soldier has a duty to either kill for me or die for me. Let's reject that. And let's reject that a great leader is here to save us. And we reject collectivism. And we embrace freedom. Folks, thanks for listening today. And remember to visit badquaker.com where liberty is our mission. Thank you.